you're talking to uh, two avowed nerds uh, for you know policy, legal, and trust and safety. So we did read your article, Evelyn. Oh boy, all the flattery. This is not gonna work, Josh. Yeah, it's, uh, you read your article. No. <laughs> That is the way to an academic's heart. I mean, it's like you and my friend, uh, and that's it. Hello and welcome to Moderated Content, podcast content about content moderation, moderated by me, Evelyn Dueck. Zoom, you may have heard of it. Chances are you have or will use it today, or at least this week. It's become a verb, let's Zoom. It's become a sometimes dreaded obligation. I'll set up a time for us to Zoom. But it's also a communications platform. And as is the universal law of communication platforms, there is trust and safety or content moderation problems. And that might surprise you. Um, You might ordinarily think of trust and safety or content moderation as a social media platform problem. But wherever there's content, uh, there's need for some kind of content moderation. And so today I'm going to talk to two people from Zoom about what is different or similar about trust and safety at Zoom from the context in which we often think and and talk about it. Somewhat unideally when it comes to doing audio, they're both called Josh. So we are going to call them Trust and Safety Josh and Public Policy Josh to try and make it a little less confusing for our listeners. Um, So Joshes, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself, tell us your titles, what your job involves so that our listeners can start to hear your voices and, and differentiate you. So maybe let's start with you, Trust and Safety Josh. Hey everybody, I'm Josh Parecki. I'm the head of trust and safety at Zoom and an also uh, also a lawyer, an associate general counsel. Great. And public policy, Josh? Yeah, Josh Kalmer, head of global public policy and government relations and a recovering lawyer. <laughs> uh, Godspeed with that, with that recovery. Um, thank you both very much for coming on. So in some ways, this is kind of part two of a conversation that we had about, I was looking at it, I think, 12 to 13 months ago at the end of 2021. It was when I was at Lawfare doing the Arbiters of Truth podcast with my co-host, Quinta Jurassic. And the title of that episode was How Zoom Thinks About Content Moderation. And I asked you then... And this is sort of quoting from what I said, something along the lines of like, why? Why are you getting into the business of moderation? You know, I said to you, like a lot of the things that are in your terms of use, your community standards, include a lot of categories of content that you don't have a legal obligation to take down. So you could, in many ways, just not do a lot of this. And a lot of the conversations, as we were saying, happen at the application layer where, you know, Facebook or Twitter or Discord, there's like, there's this sense that they have a big responsibility for the content that they host, but that, you know, Zoom feels maybe in some ways more like a telephone, or at least it could. And it could have been a meeting within Zoom at some point where you could say, that's how we're going to think about ourselves, much more as like a telephone utility or postal service. And it's not our job to to, to get our hands involved. So I just, I guess, want to start there by saying, like, how did you think of it? What was your response then, uh, a little over a year ago? And is that, you know, how are you thinking about it now, about 12 to 13 months later? It's a great question. And actually, it was that podcast that caused us to think about the question even more deeply. But back then, the way we were thinking about it was in reaction to what Zoom was in 2020. Which, if you recall, like we had this explosive use, and I think you 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 uh, rolled out the statistic about like on a one day in March we had two million signups for the application and three hundred and fifty million uses or uh, logins in one day, and all the ways that people were using Zoom were so unique and implicated potential content issues more so than we would have expected as a platform in twenty nineteen where we were largely a business to business platform. So as a result of that, we had to start thinking about it a little bit differently. We had to think, what are our obligations since people are using Zoom so publicly for so many things? And because we had the phenomenon of meeting disruptions that were coming in, and we had to think about 
how do we think about a rule set around addressing these meeting disruptions and the conduct that happens in those meetings? But then we had a conversation with you and the pandemic started to, you know, change the use of, 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 you know, Zoom as it sort of pandemic sort of died down. People still use Zoom for everything, as you said, in your wind, your wind up, but mostly business, uh, business to business for the most part or small meetings. And so it forced us to think a little bit and in particular, think about how we positioned ourselves and it caused us to actually adjust even the way publicly we represent ourselves in terms of how we enforce, uh, you know, whether you call it content moderation, because as you always say, everything is content moderation, but, or just our obligations to make sure that we have a safe platform for people to use. So we've actually done a lot of thinking about that. And recently, just actually last month, we released a new version of our uh, public facing safety materials, our new safety center, where we try to bring some clarification around that. Could I just add, add a thought in addition to what Josh said, alongside our evaluation of, of how our business was changing and what expectations people brought to it, we, we were also looking out at the world. And, you know, we've been in this period of, you know, a few years now of governments and societies around the world redefining their relationships with technology. And that's continuing and it will always continue. Uh, but one of the things that we noticed is that when it came to matters of content moderation and more broadly, how to treat different kinds of companies at different points in the stack, as we call it, it wasn't straightforward. And even very sophisticated governments like that of the United States wasn't entirely sure how to treat a lot of companies, including Zoom. And so I think it was the combination of that internal reflection, as well as this outward ever shifting and sort of uncertain landscape that got us thinking, you know, we, we both want to do something that's right for our business, uh, but we also want to inform public thinking and public debate around these issues in a thoughtful way. And, and that is all driven what we've been up to over the last 13 months or so. That's great. Every every academic dreams of having some sort of <laughs> academic impact. You don't normally think of it as coming in the form of like a sort of half-cocked question on a on a podcast. <laughs> uh, but but there you go. Um, and so I'll, I'll try and add that to my tenure file at some point, depending on how it pans out, of course. You could have just been like lobbing the responsibility onto onto me. Uh, <laughs> so we see, see how this goes. There's a lot to dig into there. But before we do, I want to make it a little bit more concrete for listeners what we're talking about so that we're not sort of just talking in the abstract about trust and safety the whole time so that people can sort of think about the kinds of issues that you're confronting and the kinds of things that you talked about. So Josh, you mentioned Zoom bombing, which was sort of the big first explosion of how people maybe started to think more about um, terms of use or, or uh, community standards, as you might, and we'll come back to the wording in a minute, uh, as you might think about these things. Um, but, you know, that that's probably only the start of it. And so I'm curious, can you sort of give us a little bit more flavor, color around the kinds of things that you see on your platform, things that people might not expect, and maybe how you might have seen different patterns over time? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, it sort of dovetails, you know, you're talking to uh, two avowed nerds uh, for, you know, policy, legal and trust and safety. So we did read your article, Evelyn. Oh, boy, all the flattery. This is not going to work, Josh. <laughs> <It's>, uh... You read <laughs> your article. No, I'm just, 
that is the way to an academic talk. I mean, it's like you and my friend, uh, and that's it. But we, we so, but uh, one of the points I wanted to sort of emphasize is, is sort of transparency, right? And so the reason I emphasize that is, you know, in 2020, we built our first transparency reports, both for purposes of government, and I'm, I promise I'm getting somewhere here, for purposes of both like government requests and for purposes of con like the decisions we make around enforcement of our safety rules. Now we're calling it the AUP. It used to be called the community standards. And so those are actually really instructive for folks to understand what we see. And so what we saw in 2020 was a range of things. So, you know, you referred to Zoom bombing, we call it meeting disruptions. And just for the listener's clarification, one of the reasons we do that is Zoom wasn't the only place where this was happening, right? Um, a lot of people were using Zoom, so it took that name, but it was happening all over the place. But in any event, so, and we'd see like a range of content, of, of conduct in uh, with respect to meeting disruptions, like anything from, you know, just silly to very, very harmful, including like folks that would disrupt meetings with things like child sexual abuse material. So number one, we wanted to sort of fairly address that conduct and take appropriate action depending on what that disruption, uh, what was associated with that disruption. But even more concretely, we started to see, as I, as I sort of said in the windup, people were using Zoom to have like very public meetings. So they'd publicize their meeting, invite people to those, to those meetings. And uh, we saw that in particular in 2020 uh, around certain um, uh meetings that were hosted by um, universities, right? And so universities or academics would have meetings and invite folks, and we'd get a lot of reports related to um, who they might invite and what the subject matter was associated with those invitations. And we'd have to start making decisions as to what we would or wouldn't do in response to one of those reports, right? Because if somebody, for example, said, you've invited, you know, person X, who we find deeply offensive or you know, might be associated with a terrorist organization, we had to figure out like, what do we do with it? And what's the framework by which we make those decisions? And, you know, who do we talk to? And um, all those sorts of things, because fundamentally, if we took any action, that is content moderation. And we needed to have clear, a clear set of rules by which we would uh, make those decisions. And so just so listeners are aware, you know, these are not hypotheticals or, or, and we talked about this a little on the, on the other podcast, but I think you're referencing uh, meetings or events at universities with Leila Khaled, who participated in airline hijackings 50 years ago and is listed by the US government with an organization labeled as a terrorist organization. Uh, And Zoom's decision at that time was to shut those meetings down um, as they'd been reported by outside third party organizations, even though, and that was a controversial decision. It was one of, again, Zoom's most controversial moments because this was an academic event. Part of the point was to discuss these things and academics often discuss difficult topics with difficult people as part of bringing in the conversation. And so did having guidelines help um, when in thinking through those issues? What was your thinking in response to those controversies and, and how did that sort of pan out? Well, I think so my response to that is it was a good start. (laughs) because um, what happened after that is we did have a set of rules, right, that we could rely upon in making some of those decisions. But then the question is, and back to the the point about transparency, and this is process transparency, it's not only did we have a set of rules, but how would we think about enforcing those rules? And then in the context of academics uh, and academic freedom in particular, we, we went back to the drawing board. Right. This is sort of what we try to do at, at Zoom, right, is anytime we make a decision like this or think about making decisions like this, we try to have conversations about it because, and again, this might sound 
trite or something, but like we try to be very humble um, and how we think about trust and safety at Zoom or even government policy, as Josh will tell you. And uh, so here, what we did was actually invited a whole bunch of academics to a series of roundtables so we could talk about it very openly and then figure out how we would thread the needle or what our commitments might be to the academic community when we evaluate these sorts of decisions in the future. And so those sorts of discussions actually then created new frameworks by which we make a decision in that context. And then we publicize that, right? To say like, here's what we're going to do under this circumstance. Here's how we're going to handle it. So we've tried to do that with, you know, how we think about trust and safety generally. And we adhere to that, um, which is another point you make in your um, article, right? It's like you could publish these guidelines, but the second question is, is you adhere to those? And so we, we're proud that we still adhere to those uh, commitments we've made in those contexts. Well, I also read your article in, in preparation for, for this podcast, uh, Trust and Safety. Josh, you wrote it with uh, your colleagues, Karen Maxim and, and Chanel Cornett in the Journal of Online Trust and Safety, titled How to Build a Trust and Safety Team in a Year, a Practical Guide from Lessons Learned uh, So Far at Zoom, which is, you know, the title says it all in terms of like you were building the plane while you were flying it, as we sort of said, given how dramatic the rise was. I thought some of the examples that you you, you quote at the end, does a civil war reenactment violence? our weapons policy? How do your rules apply to pole dancing fitness classes? Is that a nipple? Um, which I think, uh, you know, is, is some of the less serious uh, content moderation issues that come up. Are those, are those real examples? Are these are things that you've been wrestling yeah. with? Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. Like, because, you know, we had a um, we had a, a an internal Zoomy who, in fact, wanted to post sort of civil war reenact, like he liked to shoot. And so he wanted to post a video of him like in a safe circumstance and on a gun range, um, you know, shooting old Civil War weapons. But if you read our our uh, community standards at the time, like it would say, no, we can't do that. So the question is, is like, how should we modify it to account for the fact like, you know, that this might be a type of conduct that's OK, as opposed to other types of use of weaponry. So. Yeah, we pole dancing, nipples, like all sorts of things come up in the context of people's use of Zoom because, you know, whatever you can think of, people might use Zoom for with the caveat that, um, and this is what we get into in the context of our new safety center, that whatever people do on Zoom, it's it's not like social media, right? Because it's not um, searchable, indexed, you can't amplify it. So it's different. So it's much more sort of in these private settings that, you know, that people share with one another, communicate with one another. And I think that's actually highly relevant, Evelyn, to the the evolution we're going through. And it may be just a semantic difference, but I don't think so. Like the, I think what we feel like we're grappling with is maybe less about content and more about conduct. And and that's where the idea of, of, of usage guidelines comes into play. Because, you know, as, as we sharpened our thinking, we just sort of recognized, look, people come into contact with our platform in, in different ways, but a few things tend to be true, you know, as Josh referenced, we, we don't have uh, user generated content, we don't have directories, you can't follow people, calls are encrypted, some are end to end encrypted. And so the relationship that, that, that people have with it is just very different than they would with social media, which caused us to think, therefore, our how we think about enhancing safety has got to be responsive to those different uses and, and therefore a set of, of, of use guidelines and a, a very sophisticated, I mean, what Josh and his team have done over the last 13 months 
to our, our reporting structure and the kinds of tools that we have the ability to use to enhance safety has been prodigious. And they're all directly tailored to the kinds of, the kinds of you know, ways that people interact with the platform that doesn't happen in a lot of other contexts. I see your recovery from being a lawyer is, is not quite complete, Josh, <laughs> oh. when you're drawing that distinction between content and, and conduct. Well, uh, know, that's guess, yeah. a, a wonderful First it's Amendment long... uh, uh, analogy well, there. Well, I thought you were going to make fun of him for using the word prodigious. Prodigious. <laughs> oh, <laughs> also well, good. Uh, only, no, I'm that's your job. Thank you. Uh, so I guess I have some... <laughs> <laughs> it takes a while to get that out of your system. Okay, so I want to I want to talk a little bit more, be more specific about what you're talking about with the change of language and whether it's semantic. So you know you've talked about this new safety center that you you rolled out, and it really is all about drawing the distinction between yourselves and social media platforms. And I was having a chuckle, you know, because you rolled out these community standards in uh, in I think it was t- you know late 2020 or sometime in 2020. It's to say like we are going to take our responsibility seriously to trust and safety here are our new community standards. And now uh, on December 16, 2022, in your community standards update log, you say, okay, we're changing it actually to acceptable use guidelines away from community standards um, to better reflect and align Zoom's approach to trust and safety. And that, you know, it's funny to me because of course, community standards is what we talk about a lot in in the social media context. So that's where that language comes from. Like that is literally what Facebook or Meta's policies are called. And, you know, there's some variation on them on the the Twitters and the YouTubes um, community guidelines or whatever it is. But that's kind of the language that you are now trying to like push away from yourselves and say, no, 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 we are using uh, acceptable use guidelines. I guess my first question is, you know, on December 16th, 2022, did your approach in substance really change? Was there something like that you said, no, we are, we are changing how we substantively approach these issues and, and this wording is going to reflect that? Or is it something else? Is this something just branding? Um, what, what was the name change intended to achieve there? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Substantively, no, not much has changed. But I, I wouldn't use the phrase branding. I would use it more in the context of what we've talked about before, which is that you know, we're trying to, and I think Josh used this phrase, more finely hone um, our communication around what we do. And we felt that even the use of the phrase community standards would confuse uh, our users, regulators, et cetera, as to what type of platform we are. Because For the very reason you said, right? Like Meta says community standards, you know, Twitter, what remains of it, says some sort of community standards. Like, but like, that's not us. Right. So if we started to parrot what those sites look like, um, including the use of their language, then I think there's a danger that we get that our users get confused. And they did. Right. So real practical examples like most of our customer base are enterprise customers. Yeah, they read our community standards and they they think, well, I don't understand. You're going to enforce your community standards in our private corporate environment. And so it did create some confusion and, and, and again, lack of transparency or some opacity about how we might do it. So we very intentionally changed it to try to make sure that we were clearer or more transparent as to what type of platform we are. But importantly, we haven't changed our approach because our approach is safety, right? Like we still want to make sure our platform is a safe place for people to communicate. So we, we can't sort of say, no, we're not going to do anything to make sure your, your spaces are safe so you can communicate but we didn't want to, you know, we didn't want to intentionally cause confusion with the, with our users and regulators and, global community. Right. So you mentioned regulators and I want to pick up on that because I think that is another big thing that has changed in the last 
even year. Like, it's amazing how quickly this is moving. Since the last time we talked, uh, regulators have really sort of like their ears have pricked up and they're really starting to look at this space much more closely. And it's uh, it's impossible to keep track of everything that's going on, although that's basically your job. So my sympathies. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one a cynical take on this might be, oh, you see the regulation coming down the pipe and you want to distance yourself from social media platforms and things like that in, in purpose, uh, on purpose in order to really sh- say to regulators, don't include us in this bucket. There's all this regulation coming. But this is like very onerous. There's all of these transparency obligations. There's all of these things that social media platforms have to do. That's not us. We are not them. Don't include us. So I guess uh, the question is, is that you know a big part of how you're thinking about it? And is it working? You know, it's funny. I was, I think I was telling Josh this story a few days ago, about six years ago, I was in a prior job uh, working for a trade association representing a lot of global tech companies. And it was kind of around the point some tech companies were getting into hot water. And the question that was being asked was, is tech going to be regulated? You know, what's going to happen? How can we prevent tech from being regulated? And that just struck me as such an odd question and just not the question at all, because fundamentally every company exists in a regulatory environment. And that's the thinking that informs how we approach this. I mean, we obviously have a, you know, we represent a, a commercial enterprise. We want to you know, manage the regulatory environment in a way that supports our innovation and what we're trying to do. But that doesn't mean trying to avoid being regulated. I think what, what we're aiming to do is not only so that we can do right by our customers and users, but that so we can do right by the rest of the world is be as sophisticated in our own thinking about who we are and who we are not. And uh, have an exchange with regulators, have an exchange with thought leaders about that and have a debate about it in some circumstances and, and see where that lands from a regulatory perspective, whether it's in the EU, whether it's with the FCC, whether it's in uh, Australia. So, you know, I think that we are, there is a public interest element to it. There also is a commercial interest element to it. And, and I think we found that our ability to sharpen our thinking around who we are serves both interests. And that's a that's a good thing. And we should go out to the world with it as much as we can. Yeah. And, and like some of the regulations, like, again, given the nature of our product, which is uh, one of the things that Josh is, is saying, like, don't make sense for Zoom and Zoom's customers. That doesn't mean that the intent of a lot of those regulations is not pure and good. But the question is, is whether they make sense, uh, whether they actually promote the safety and well-being, for example, in the context of safety regulation of our customers. And I would actually, you know, kind of look at it from the other vantage. And and Josh, if you were here, you can kick me under the table, but I don't think you would. Like, (laughs) given the nature of our product, it's, it's natural that regulators ought to lean more heavily in terms of reporting structures and transparency around how you do things rather than on an encrypted platform, an expectation that you're monitoring in real time what people are are doing. So it, it it also involves highlighting areas that are more fruitful for for regulators to potentially look at. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a a view that I have a lot of sympathy with. I think, as you know, which is that we do need to be thinking about different layers of the internet stack and different kinds of products as very different. Um, it, it it doesn't make sense, I think, to treat you like. A Facebook, but it also doesn't make sense to treat you just like a you know dumb pipe um, that that just trans like a telephone because there are sort of all of these different affordances that you c- can and do provide um, that that make you 
different. And so this is something I think that we do need a lot more nuance in in thinking about um, in thinking about what your responsibility is and how that should be enshrined in law. Nuance, sadly, and, and words like internet stack aren't necessarily things that are, you know, uh, music to, to regulators' <laughs> ears um, in terms of thinking about this. And so I'm curious, you know, as all of this regulation is, is coming down the pipe and you're seeing it, what does it look like for you? Like, are you seeing that there's going to be very different compliance obligations in, say, Europe, the UK, like the massive Digital Services Act in, in Europe, which is coming uh, in the next few years. And then there's the online safety bill in the UK, which is still working its way through Parliament. You know, the, and that's just to mention two sort of high profile ones. But these are, uh, you mentioned Australia, there's obviously so many bills in the US, not on the Hill necessarily, but we have state-based legislation coming through. And uh, so how much inconsistency is there? And like, in general, are you finding that you are being carved out and thought separately to social media platforms? Or are you finding that Zoom is often getting lumped in in the same bucket? I, I would say it's hard to generalize at at this point, in part because, you know, there's such a difference between what the words on the page say, even something as advanced and, you know, implemented as the DSA is, and how they come to be enforced over a period of time. So I, I think time will tell. What I will say is that we feel reasonably good about, and it, you know, it's uneven, but reasonably good about the the progress we've made in speaking directly with regulators and getting buy-in to the idea that there are business model relevant, you know, put aside the reference to the stack, there are business model relevant differences that ought to inform their policy making. And, you know, it, it may or may not result in a specific provision in a specific instance that we love. But I think the certainly our hope is that if we can at least inform the conceptual frame that, that they're using, that's significant progress. I will say one thing that that is interesting as well is the, the momentum from the, let's call it the other end of the stack, the dumb pipes end of the stack. A lot of economies, EU included, India included, arguably Turkey, are looking at essentially telecommunications regulation and taking a very expansive approach to it, at least at this stage, which creates the risk that we're very mindful of that that they may, may over-index on a company like Zoom from the opposite direction when it comes to lawful intercept requirements, when it comes to universal service obligations or whatever it is. So we've got it on both sides, but I think it, it, too early to tell how it's going to shake out, but we feel reasonably good about our ability to inform those conceptual frameworks. And, and I'll put a plug in for, for Josh and team right here, because, you know, again, as we sort of said at the top, like one of the ideas behind updating the safety center is to create a powerful tool to engage with regulators, right? So, you know, I think we've had, you know, a good amount of success in having very candid, very transparent conversations led by Josh's team, supported by mine, right, about, you know, addressing some of the things that they are concerned about, like that are undermining some of these regulatory pushes and whether it be Europe or the UK or the United States, and then talking about all the things that were, first of all, how our product works, right? Which is important, but, and then all of our commitments to safety, to the extent that the regulations are trying to regulate safety. Super interesting that you mentioned sort of the other end of the stack, the dumb pipes end. And I actually want to put a question to you that I put to you last time and see if your reaction is different, which is, would it make you happy to be declared a dumb pipe in some sense? Because we've talked about how difficult some of these 
considerations these questions are. You know, you're spending an inordinate amount of time trying to work out if that's a nipple or if, you know, civil war weapons are uh, something that violates your, your weapon policy. And in some sense, if a must carry obligation is imposed on you, it, it makes a lot of that much easier. And you don't have to take necessarily the, the flack for those decisions because you can say, well, look, this is our legal obligation. We have to carry. We are now some sort of universal service provider in some sense with obviously illegality, like, you know, core legal content carved out from that. And in, in a way, I mean, it might make your job more boring, but it also might make it uh, in some ways easier. And so I'm, I'm curious how you think about it, because this is, you know, in some ways a very heavy responsibility. Like when you're thinking about, do we want this person associated with a terrorist organization using our service? On the other hand, academic freedom, and I know which side of the line I come down on, but I can see why there's a business consideration there, something that's very difficult for you in terms of uh, business risk and, and considerations, would it make you happier if the regulators just took this out of your hand and said, we're going to decide for you, just carry the stuff? I'll start with just one thing from sort of a trust and safety perspective, because uh, our team also includes law enforcement, uh, the law enforcement response team. So I think Josh sort of hinted at this in his response, right? Like if we get put more towards the dumb pipe side, it's not like our obligations go away. Right. Like maybe some of the thinking on the front end about what we can't, what we should or could do around sort of safety or proactive safety measures or responding to reports, maybe some of that goes away. But we're probably going to get a net increase in things like requirements to build lawful intercept capabilities into products that never had had that obligation before. So I think it's like, because ultimately, like a lot of the dumb pipes, right, like the telecom companies, right, are responding to wiretap requests left and right, whether they're in the United States or in some cases abroad, if they're doing their business. And as Josh said, like we see in certain other countries already a little bit of regulatory capture of non-number, you know, number independent communication services. I think there's certainly days when probably Josh and I and some of our colleagues feel like it would be easier to just be declared a, you know, a common carrier obligated to provide universal service, but that wouldn't be the right place to land. And one of the reasons it wouldn't be the right place to land is, be, you know, the idea of what's best for our customers and our users. That's not what they, for the most part, expect. That's not, yes, they are primarily focused on private spaces to conduct secure communications with one another rather than a wide open public space. But there are elements to this that do make, make us very different than a common carrier. We don't, we don't really have significant physical infrastructure, you know, and, and for example, along with the things that, that Josh identified, another one is just that our customers and our users expect us to be global. They expect whether it's a multinational or a small business trying to you know, enter a, a foreign market or, or universities, you know, doing cross-border classes, that there's going to be a seamless cloud-based experience. And that, in a way, is fundamentally antithetical with what is still and probably will remain national-level telecommunications and basic communications regulations. So I think just from the perspective of what is, is truest to our customers and users of what kind of company we are, being at either end, even though it might make life simpler on some days, just is nowhere near the right place to be. And also just like one more thing, have you peeled back those telecommunication regulations? <laughs> so, you know, like there, sure. there are still- well, some headaches creates others, yes. <laughs> there are still lots and lots of uh, like what 
to to quote you, what could be considered content moderation, even in the concept in the content uh, context of telecommunication regulations. So that's a super between you know Josh and I a super long winded answer to your question. But I think look for us, it's more important I think to try to establish what we are, and then to try to find a path like through proactive engagement to making sure that we show our commitment to our user safety and security and privacy. And if regulators want to hold us accountable, we'll take that um, as long as, you know, I can't set those conditions, but our preference would be so long as it's with the acknowledgement of what our product is and isn't. Okay. So you mentioned national level boundaries and also Josh, earlier you referenced India and in these conversations, I can't help but sort of ask a question about, you know, India specifically, but also more generally the kind of trend we're seeing in many jurisdictions, which is to use law to force platforms. And again, this conversation mostly happens with respect to the the Facebooks and the Twitters and the YouTubes to take down content that we might otherwise think of as extremely democratically important speech. And of course, a hundred percent legal in the United States. So, you know, the big controversy that's playing out right now is the Modi government in India is uh, pressuring platforms to take down a BBC documentary that's critical of Modi. And this is just one topical example of a trend that we're seeing around the world. And, you know, this is a situation where I have a lot of sympathy for people in your chair, and it's a lot more fun for me to sort of critique responses on the outside um, than it is. And this is a situation where, you you know, if you could be kicking each other under the chair a lot based on what you say. And so I appreciate this is a difficult question. But how do you think about those obligations when you get legal orders from governments that are compliance with national law, but are the kinds of things that, you know, as a free speech academic are certainly things that I really think are are critically important to be protected. Uh, And you can imagine many situations where this comes up in the, in the situation of Zoom, again, like one of the original controversies with Zoom was in, in exactly this kind of situation where Zoom canceled services for activists in China uh, and the United States regarding the Tiananmen Square massacre in compliance with, with Chinese law. So I'm curious how you're thinking about that now. Yeah, I'll start. And Josh, feel free to interrupt me or layer or kick me under the table virtually. So it's interesting. I think For us, the muscle that we've been working on building, particularly since June of 2020, is rigorous process. And that includes both how we communicate that externally, how we enforce it internally, how people interact with Zoom or must interact with Zoom if they are, in fact, going to make a request of Zoom, and then adhering to our standards in addition to evaluating the legal basis of the request. So we publish our government request guide. We took great pains to make it super easy to read, right? We actually let a bunch of folks look at it and, you know, to determine whether it was as easy to read as we think it is. And it includes, for example, a whole section on what we call withhold access requests. We built a law enforcement response system, which um, is a system that if a law enforcement agency wants to make a request, they have to use that. Uh, We provide training materials in international jurisdictions in terms of how to use that law enforcement response system. And we we hold anybody that's submitting a request to the standards of using that system. And then we report on it transparently in our transparency report. And that has been incredibly important and effective in whatever jurisdiction around the world you can think of to hold them just to that standard. And then internally, right, in terms of how we evaluate those requests, to hold them to high rigorous legal standards and not be afraid to challenge the request if appropriate. 
So, and we've done that in certain jurisdictions. Can I just clarify what you mean there? Yeah. Um, when you say incredibly effective and, and holding them to that standard, what, what's the material change? Like, do you see fewer requests coming in or something because the requirements are, are clearer or more rigorous? What do you mean by that? Well, I, I should start by saying we don't get a lot of those requests. So, you, you know, just as a, a starting point, but to the extent that we have gotten those requests, we say definitively that you must follow our process. And so what we find sometimes is that they just sort of give up and they don't want to follow our process. And if they really, really wanted to follow the, you know, get their request done, they would probably follow our process. And then we've had some instances where they follow their process and we did not find a legal basis for the request and we turned it down and we were prepared to live with the consequences of that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the exact number, it's probably part of the transparency report, but we we have turned down a meaningful number of requests. And I think probably even 13 months ago, when we were much earlier in the process of doing it, we didn't know how it was going to turn out every time. I think now we feel more confident that this system has been tested. It's been tested procedurally. It's been tested substantively. And it's stood up fairly well. We just have, have been able to say no or no thank you or whatever, um, and continue on with without repercussions, which is gratifying. Yeah. I mean, also to go back to the top of our conversation, right? Like we actually find even in certain jurisdictions, a certain amount of engagement about what Zoom is and isn't also helps at the threshold level, right? Like if a government agency comes to us and they have some expectation of us to do something, Sometimes our response is like, you're barking up the wrong tree. That's not the kind of platform Zoom is. We don't, we don't do that or we don't have that capability. That has actually been effective, even in jurisdictions that are a little bit more challenging. So you mentioned a couple of times the importance of process. And this is dear to my own heart, the importance of, of process in, in thinking about these things. And again, we talked about it on the last podcast, but Zoom has in, in its time and its experience spun up quite a intricate, significant process um, when we're talking not about, well, I mean, we just talked about the government requests process, but also on the other side, when it comes to user requests and these community standards dash acceptable use policy standards as well. And you have this four tier review system that you have where you go go through an appeals process and end up at an, an appeals panel, um, which I have more questions about. But I want to ask if anything about that process has changed since we talked about it in the last year and whether this pivot away from thinking of yourselves, uh, you know, pushing out the fact that you are not like a, a social media platform, how that's changed your thoughts around process, because this is a kind of process that we do see a lot at social media platforms. And indeed, even the safe trust and safety appeals panel looks in, in some ways like the, you know, uh, meta oversight board, for example. So how are you thinking about process now? Has anything around that changed? Short answer is no. We still use that tier review process, but you know we've done so much work to be transparent, to educate our users about how our platform works, that we just don't have to use it all that often. Again, back to the nature of our product, but we have used it. And every, every time we run into a, let's say a, a controversial issue that escalates to our tier four or appeals panel. As we talked about before, we, we follow a little bit of a docket-based process, right? So like taking from the Supreme Court, which I know is a road we can go down as well. But we do think it's important that we memorialize all of our decisions, right? Who made them, how they were made, what we considered, who we talked to, what data we relied upon to think about the decision we made. But we don't use it very often because, you know, our product just doesn't merit it. We just don't get a lot of those those types of cases. Any 
consideration, thoughts around making any of that public. Like, that sounds like a treasure trove to me. You have this massive appeal system. You've got a docket. You've got memorialized uh, decisions around some of the most difficult decisions that you have to make in, in your seat. Uh, sounds wonderful. Like, that kind of thinking sounds like stuff that I'd be super interested in, that regulators would be super interested in. C- can we see it? <laughs> we could talk about that in the future. I mean, I think the only thing I would tell you, Evelyn, is you is you and or regulator or or other academics might be disappointed because it's just not, there's just not a lot in there, right? So you'd sort of get it and you'd be like, oh, okay. It, I mean, it's, so it's interesting, right? When you're on the outside and this goes to some of the articles that you've written and other people have written as well, like it's, it's sort of not an academic's fault, right? Because you just don't have a lot of data to, to like latch onto to do some of the analysis. Um, so, you know, we could give you access to it, but you'd probably find it wasn't all that interesting, right? It's like, you know, we got a report from person X that says this thing is going to happen. And then we pulled in a bunch of facts from a bunch of folks. We analyzed it and then we memorialized our decision. But you'd find it, it's probably not as rich as say maybe like a meta or a Twitter or otherwise. So, you know, if it, even if it was, I see the value in that because I'm, you know, personally, I'm proud of our team and the process that we've built and how rigorous we are following it. So I don't have any compunction with um, being very transparent that we do it and and it's something to be proud of. And then to a point that you've, that you've made in the past in your articles, we don't just sort of like, I think in your article, you talk a lot about uh, the post hoc decision making, right, process and why that might be flawed in the context of, of trust and safety, or maybe there's a better way. I agree with that in a lot of different ways. So like oftentimes, if we ever have a decision that sort of percolates up to that level, we try to learn from it and apply those learnings like to how we think about trust and safety more broadly. And a great example of that back to the earlier part of the discussion was with Leila Khaled, like that was a super controversial decision. So we took it, we learned from it, we think about how we might enforce it, we integrate new enforcement mechanisms. If, for example, we receive, receive reports with respect to the academic community and we build and evolve and create a feedback loop. But yeah, that's that's my only sort of like caveat. Well, I appreciate you protecting me from the disappointment that I feel. <laughs> uh, you're really looking out for, for me and my interests there. Um, <laughs> thank goodness. Yeah, I want to ask you about this uh, ex-ante sort of design thing. Uh, there was an article in the Washington Post just this week, actually, that said that Zoom made its product more annoying to use to make you safer and, and went through some of the, the friction and affordances and things that you've implemented to make it harder for someone to just sort of jump onto a, a meeting and hijack it, meeting disruption, not not Zoom Thank meeting. You. Thank um, you. Yeah. <laughs> and so I want to ask you about that and how you think about it, because as you say, I think I think that's right. And I think that it does make a lot more sense to be thinking about these as systemic issues and, and how do you build a product to make people safer rather than trying to clean up messes after the fact. And so whether some of this is in part uh, you know, how you've seen your system change over the time that you've been doing it, the different affordances that you've used and how you're thinking about this going forward. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a evangelist for the notion of safety by design, right? Like, and I, I would say that like we could have handled the meeting disruption phenomenon in, you know, many different ways, like in 2020, we could have just created the flat reporting system and sort of dealt customer by customer and made, you know, very minimal changes to the, to the product. But we had a commitment up to, you know, our CEO and our executive suite that we needed to do something to like help fix the problem. And so we actually, this was early on, right? Like both Josh and I started around June, 2020. 
And we were not shy to have conversations with customers and not just like big enterprise customers, right? Like even free users. I can't tell you how many calls I took at all times of the day and night and members of my team took all day, you know, times of day and night around like how a disruption happened and why it happened and what settings they did or didn't use when it happened. And so we were able to take all that information in 2020 and leading into 2021 and influence the way the product was designed, right? Um, and, and the article does say, there's really two principles of the article. Like one is we want to build tools that users can use to make their own environment safe. But we can't just say it's all on you users, right? Like we have to do something to um, help help them, proactively help them. Um, so we don't just push it all on them. And so, yeah, we created some default settings that, that maybe inserted a little bit of friction, but ultimately like it's a relatively low amount of friction for what we're accomplishing, which is like um, allowing our users to be safe and our users can choose to peel that back. We just want to make sure they understand the, the safety risks of, of doing that. And I think like this sort of notion of a feedback loop, which is like, you put a pro we have a product out there. We observe um, some behaviors related to safety. We take definitive note of those, and we start thinking about how we might solve that, like make that better, without interfering too much with the core benefit of the product. Right? Like Zoom is so amazing because it works. I mean, it just does. I mean, I know I work there, but it works and it's easy to use. And so we did want to be really careful, right, not to interfere with that too much. We also, you know, needed to make sure that folks felt safe using it. And so we built the feedback loop, understand how those things were happening, used it to influence the design choices over the course of 2020, 2021, tested, reiterated. We continue to get reports, understand the nature of the reports, interact with the customer, feed it back in, and on and on and on we go. And we would have um, training meetings um, with like certain customers who were having like high profile public setting meetings to say how you might do it. They'd give us feedback, oh, that's a little hard, that's a little easy. And then we'd sort of modify and, and grow as it is. And then we also sort of interacted with a bunch of members of civil society whose constituents were using the product, like for public setting meetings. And they acted also as evangelists for the safety settings, right? So they taught their, their constituent base, like how to use the product safely. So all these sort of moving parts taken together, this feedback loop, like is really what helped, I think, Zoom tame, as the article says, but not eliminate the threat of meeting disruption, right? It's a evolving threat and we got to stay after it and really benefited our users. But that is a, that's a, that's safety design by design thinking, which I think is so important when you're thinking about safety. What am I or the public conversation missing in this conversation as, as, as we have it? Is there something in particular I should have asked you about that I haven't asked you about that you, you know, the, the reason that you came on this podcast that you want to get off your chest and make sure people are thinking about, is there something that you feel frustrated about that people aren't paying attention to? What, what's missing here? Yeah, I have one. I'm not sure if it's something that is frustrating, but maybe something that's a little bit surprising that people should be mindful of, which is that I think we, and I'm kind of looking at from the looking out at the world part of this, people make cartoonish distinctions, I think, among different jurisdictions and countries about how they're going to treat these issues. And there are certainly instances where governments seem to be taking a, a pretty blunt and almost coercive approach 
to a, a wide range of companies in terms of the you know the their obligations to moderate con- content or conduct and and have a relationship with the government. But another thing that we found in in some markets that you would associate less with being like open to free speech and supportive of expression and connection and so forth is actually a remarkable openness to having this conversation and to being educated about the kinds of companies that are out there and what they do and what the expectations are that people have of their products and what that means for the kind of relationship that the government should therefore have with them. I mean, I, I, I will say that Turkey is a country that has been remarkably open to these kinds of discussions. Now, we'll, we'll see where the ultimate regulatory framework lands, but it's been a real education for me and our team. I think that there are very few conversations that aren't worth having. And in many cases, a lot of these governments and jurisdictions are just earlier in the stage of developing their thinking around these issues and they're more open to feedback and nuance than you would expect. And so we, we found in some markets that we're hoping to, you know, get more deeply into that it's not always smooth sailing, but we're having more success in having a real conversation. And again, like having having a meeting of the minds about the right conceptual framework, even if we sometimes differ on the application of that framework to a specific company or a specific use case. So that's something that I, th- I just think is interesting and surprising, um, not frustrating, but but interesting. Yeah, I I, I that's uh, totally obviously agree with all that. I think I think I'll play a small violin for a minute and just say like, this stuff is hard to get right. And so again, you know that our listeners may not have or your listeners may not have a lot of sympathy for that position, but it is it is a it is a hard thing to try to sort of stay ahead of those that would seek to harm people, you know, in, in our user base or customer base or anybody online um, and how to stay ahead of that and to constantly think about how to do that while at the same time preserving folks' privacy and fundamental ability to communicate with one another and then to navigate like some of the equities or the interests that Josh described, which is like a bunch of regulators that sort of may have good intent, but have a, you know, sort of taking a blunt approach. So it's a super hard problem set that I think, you know, we're endeavoring to be very as, as transparent as we possibly can around how we're thinking about it and constantly dedicated towards like improving and innovating around it. I think it's also good to just emphasize another point that Josh said, the power of even having conversations with regulators and our user base, even if it's uncomfortable is outsized in comparison to the, the, the pain you may feel <laughs> going into that conversation, right? You just have a chance to learn from other people and not just our customer and user base, although there's a correlation, but also with like civil society groups, academics, um, you know, and o- others that just might want to, you know, provide their feedback and input. You know, I think uh, we do that and we welcome it and we think it's had a, a, a lot of impact on our, our approach, but yeah, small violin, you know, safety is hard especially in the context of communications. Yeah, I mean, I I obviously couldn't agree 
with you more about these issues being really hard. You know, my paycheck kind of relies on the fact that these things are hard and we can't solve them. So uh, let's keep paying her to keep thinking about them. And I think engagement with governments is is one of those particularly tricky issues because I think this is one where, you know, on the one hand, you're obviously correct that engagement is necessary. A lot of these governments are coming from a place of not knowing many things uh, and, and informing them and educating them. It can be really influential and positive. On the other hand, of course, you know, I am a, <laughs> a free speech scholar and you tell me that you know communication platforms are meeting with governments, including um, governments known to issue authoritarian orders around you know censorship and speech. And my heartbeat raises a little bit uh, in terms of thinking about that. And so, I mean, it's a really, really hard line to walk. And of course, I think, you know, there's a lot to what you say about the value of these conversations um, and the importance of them. And, you know, another area where there's all these trade-offs is, is transparency around that as well, because my response might be, well, okay, that's fantastic. Have these conversations, but let's make them as transparent as possible so that we know what you're saying, so we know what they're saying. But then there's trade-offs as well about how influential and how open and how uh, persuasive you might be able to be. And I do wonder whether your experience of those conversations might be very different to someone. I think this might be an area where the layers of the stack are also very different as well. Because as you say, Zoom just works. Everyone opens it and it kind of would be really annoying if I didn't have <laughs> Zoom as much as we joke about it. And it's a, a thing that it's a service, it's a utility that people need, including I'm sure government actors, but the, the conversations might be very, very different for platforms that are more politically sensitive or 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 otherwise. So it's a, it's a very difficult trade-off, but I feel like I couldn't keep my credentials as a, as a free speech <laughs> scholar without noting um, the different equities, the difficult equities when it comes to engaging with governments um, as well. You also mentioned the pain of, of going into these conversations and needing to be open and, and transparent. And I guess that's just one last question, which is always, you know, why are you talking to me? Like, why are you doing these uh, these conversations? There is some risk. The more you say, um, the more you open yourself up as a sort of a, a target for criticism to say, oh, look, uh, Zoom is, is trying to take this approach either, you know, from both sides, either, oh, my God, it has acceptable use policies. I didn't know that. That's outrageous. I thought that I could do anything in my meetings or, oh, my God, they're moving away from community standards towards acceptable use policies? Are they not thinking about their responsibility seriously? Um, and, you know, we've had a long conversation, so I, I don't need to reiterate why the, neither of those unnuanced positions are right. But I guess the question is, why do you do this? Why do you put yourself out there like this? Well, your question sort of answered the question, right? Like in the sense of like, if people listen to the podcast and they say, why did you, you know, why community standards and why AUP, right? Like, one of the reasons I think it's a good idea to have a conversation with somebody like you, you know, number one, I think you understand some of the nuance and you know how to ask some some uh, targeted questions around that nuance. But two is like to, tr to try to bring clarity for it, right? Like, again, like we make these changes, we try to be really thoughtful about how we do it to articulate what our product is, what our product isn't, how we approach safety, because fundamentally, like we're going to be held to a standard by governments and our users around the world that we have a safe product. So I'd rather have the conversation in a relatively public setting, right? Or a public setting to say, hey, we're thinking about these things and, and we're interested in talking about them. And we have some humility around it because if we don't do that, then it's just sort of a black box, right? And you're right. There's some risk having a conversation like this, but I think it's probably a risk worth taking. And we get feedback. I mean, whether it's getting feedback from the questions you asked or what your, your responses are, like it's... As we learned from the discussion we had 13 months ago, it, it shapes our thinking and we think in maybe not a perfect way, but in a pretty healthy way. 
All right. I look forward to our conversation in a year's time then when, <laughs> yeah. when I discover uh, the ramifications of, of this conversation. Um, and in any event, I, I really appreciate it. I will uh, send you a check for all of those shout outs <laughs> to my articles, Josh. Uh, that was that was fantastic. Uh, really nailed it. It sounded completely natural. And thank you both very much for coming on. This has been Moderated Content. This show is available in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And show notes and transcripts are available at law.stanford.edu forward slash moderated content. Uh, this show is produced by Brian Pelletier. Special thanks also to Alyssa Ashdown, Justin Fu, and Rob Hubbard.